Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of NEIS Member Voices, a brand new NEIS podcast focusing on you, the hardworking individuals that make up the independent school community. Uh, so each show will be speaking to a different staff member at an NEIS member school about their role, uh, the challenges they face, their successes, where they uh, look to for inspiration, and more. I'm Scott Donaldson, NEIS's Member Engagement Coordinator, and today I'll be speaking with Anne Klotz, Headmistress at Laurel School in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And welcome to Member Voices. Hi, Scott. I'm happy to be here. So we actually have something in common. I grew up on the west side of Cleveland. You did? I that did. Exciting. Yeah, so actually not too far away from uh, Shaker Heights. I was in Fairview Park, and I knew a few girls that attended Laurel. So, oh my gosh, small world. The world of independent schools, as anyone in one knows, is a very small one indeed. That's right. Uh, so, how did you originally find out about the position? What interested you? Right. So, Scott, I've been at Laurel since 2004, and I have a slightly unusual trajectory as a headmistress. I had been the director of college guidance and the head of the drama department at the Chapin School for 20 years. Uh, but along the way, I went to seek out a mentor of mine who had hired me at Chapin long before and said that I, I felt like I was ready for something more. And she uh, looked at me and said, now you need to be ahead. And I said, as way too many women do, thinking about headship, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. And she said, of course you can. You've had so many of the experiences you need. The fact is my husband and I had founded and run a summer theater training program for high school kids. So I had done a lot on a miniature scale of the tasks required of a head. And with the encouragement of my mentor, eventually I got over myself and um, entered a few searches. Laurel came on my radar um, when uh, a consultant called me, but I knew the school because of Carol Gilligan's work here in the 80s and because of Joanne Deek's work uh, writing about girls and how we raise them and educate them. So for me, it was uh, a dream school. I've spent my life in girls' schools. I went 13 years to Agnes Irwin School outside of Philadelphia. I had been for 20 years at Chapin. I have drunk the Kool-Aid of why girls' schools work for so many girls. And Laurel was the right school for me at the right moment in my life. Hmm. And now I want to touch on actually a few things that you that you brought up in that last answer. Uh, so um, why do you think that girls' schools are, are so vital um, today in the independent school community and just for uh, young uh, adults and, and children as a whole? So uh, the answer is so long that we could spend the whole podcast on this, okay, but I'll right. try and give you the Cliff Notes version. I'm an English teacher. Okay. Um, for me, girls' schools are about girls claiming their voices and understanding that in a world where gender equity is not yet a given, girls gain the confidence to use their talents and gifts in a complicated world. And in this girls' school, we are teaching collaboration and creative problem solving and critical thinking, like so many of my fantastic colleague girls' schools. I don't think it's insignificant that girls' schools are on the rise in this country, that people feel, despite recent articles to the contrary, that, uh, that suggest little girls already are saying they're not smart enough by the age of six. I think those of us in girls' schools know that our work is to counter 
all the cultural forces that come at little girls and big girls about what they can and cannot do. And in many ways, girls' schools in this country were iconoclastic when they were founded, many of them in the 19th century. And we're still doing that subversive work today by affirming a girl's right to be at any table she chooses to be at. Hmm. I love that. Uh, And you're right, we probably could spend the whole podcast talking about (laughs) that. Um, I do want to dwell on that for, for just one more minute. So how have the girls at your school changed or how have you noticed a change in your student population since you started at Laurel compared to now? Oh, that's such fun to talk about. So early in my headship, we established Laurel Center for Research on Girls, and that allows us to put the world's best research to work for girls. And everything we do in terms of our curricular choices, our pedagogy, our parent education, how we're thinking and talking and being with girls is evidence-based. And we've been really privileged to be able to uh, conduct original research, to look review existing research and put it on the ground here at Laurel. We were one of the early adopters of Carol Dweck's work around growth mindset. Um, And that has been a game changer in terms of achievement for our own girls. If girls understand that persistence and effort pay off and they practice that and they don't say things like, well, my dad wasn't any good at Spanish, so I'm not good at Spanish, which unfortunately, culturally, sometimes we We offer those messages unwittingly to our children, and it allows them to sort of take themselves out of the game. If we keep coming back to the idea of effort and persistence and working hard pay off, those girls with a growth mindset, actually their achievement exceeds the achievement of children who do not have a growth mindset, who have what we call a fixed mindset. So that's one example. We took that work, Dweck's work, uh, now nine or ten, seven or, I don't know, a a while ago, and started building curriculum around it at Laurel. And it's had a huge impact on our girls. Have you noticed any changes to girls' schools as a whole since you started at Laurel? They are loud and proud. And I'm so lucky to be in the constellation of girls' schools in this country. We are, I think, of course, I'm a slightly biased Scott, some of the most innovative, amazing educational institutions in this country. I love it. Very cool. And actually, I want want to... I'll I'll include Canada. I'll include Canada (laughs) and the UK as well, and Australia and New Zealand and all over the world. I think girls' schools are raising up generations of young women to make a difference and to not only be high achievers academically, but to be ethical and empathetic women. I love it. And, and actually, I want to um, shift gears, but just a tiny bit um, and, and stay on this topic uh, to talk about some of the presentations that you've done um, in workshops uh, at uh, the NEIS annual conference, for instance, last year in San Francisco, uh, you participated in, I believe, two, am I right, workshops? I think so. Uh, yep. f- focusing on um, what it takes for uh, to be a successful female leader uh, of an independent school. Uh, and I'm curious if you could uh, expand on, on that a little bit. Uh, hopefully some of our listeners were able to attend the workshop. But, but if not, if you could just touch a little bit on what you discussed there and, and what you think um, it takes to uh, feel and be successful as a female leader at an independent school. 
Sure. So this is a topic about which I'm pretty passionate. Um, you may know I've taught for several summers in the NIS Aspiring Heads cohort. I'm also involved in teaching for the Heads Network Women's Leadership Seminar. I believe hugely that we need to bring more women and people of color into independent school leadership. And my concern is that women take themselves out of the game too early. Mm -hmm. They believe that they can't run a school if they have a young family or a spouse who is um, a spouse or partner who's reluctant to relocate. Um, I think these are real dilemmas for women. I think women too often still, going back to that, we're not on a level playing field situation. I think often it's women in a family who are the caretakers also of older parents. And I think we have to, women leaders in schools and men leaders in schools need to be pointing towards headship, division leadership with young women and thinking about paths that can lead there. When women are younger, earlier in their careers, goal setting and saying, have you thought about this? What are the experiences we might want to make sure you have in this school that prepare you for going forward? I also think in my own leadership, I've worked really hard to mentor women and men to headship because I think it reflects glory back on the school if someone acquires the skills she needs in order to go to lead a school elsewhere. And I think we are in a new time where I grew up in an era where there were plenty of people who stayed in one school their whole life. That's not happening anymore. You know, we, many of us do relocate and go to different parts of the country, but we just have to continue to have the conversation. I don't think there's a quick formula. I don't think there's a spreadsheet that we can check off. I will say that um, the little story I told about coming to Headship, um, I think too often, and this is a big gender generalization, so I'm aware that I'm making one, <laughs> too often women want to check every box and say, well, I've had every one of these experiences that would qualify me instead of being able to say to a board, no, I haven't raised a million dollars, but I've sat on the board of our local library and I have participated in a fundraising campaign. You know, and we as leaders and mentors in independent schools need to be talking candidly and openly about the experiences women candidates need um, as boards are looking at them, and we need to help them get those experiences in our own schools and in our communities. Right. No, I, I think that's great, and I'm sure the workshop was fantastic. And that's the other thing. More women should be proposing workshops for the annual conference. I like and that run. idea, too. Yes, yes, I am all about that. Um, and uh, there was one other thing that, uh, that you touched on. Uh, in your initial story about how you came to be head of Laurel, uh, which is your theater background. Uh, oh. <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit, of, because I have a theater background as well. Um, I was sure. wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, uh, what that transition was like and how that background served you in your current role. So I sometimes think that the very best uh, preparation I had for headship was a background as a drama teacher. And I'll tell you why. I am, if you produce a play at a high school or anywhere, you have to bring together your director and designers and producer. You have to all get on the same page about things like money and what the vision of the production is going to be and how you're going to take the vision and put it on the ground as a reality and bring mm -hmm. it all in under budget. And so that piece of collaboration is pretty natural and intuitive for me, although not really intuitive because I spent a lot of time honing those skills as a drama teacher. 
I would also say that as a drama teacher, I'm trained in improv and I believe in saying yes and instead of no but. And that Hmm. piece of my own willingness to say, gosh, is there another way we could get to this outcome? Um, While I'm obviously not acting in scenes with people, I'm using those same skills all day long to try to encourage other people to risk, to make a bold choice, to be brave enough to try something, even if we're not really sure how it's going to work out. And we talk all day long in independent schools about encouraging risk-taking in our girls. But I think we need to model that more often. For me, I think about it, trying to model it as a leader. So I'm making it safe for my faculty and staff to do the same. So they, in turn, are making it safe and appealing for girls to risk and dare in ways that they might not have believed that they could until they tried. I love it, especially uh, as someone with uh, a theater background. I love that response. Uh, And you all have uh, at Laurel um, a summer theater program. Is that right? We do. It, It has deep roots. Um, I'm actually, I don't teach in it right now, um, but we have a wonderful drama teacher. It stretches back to the, I think, to the 50s or 60s. In those days, it was called the Laurel Summer Theater Institute, and now it's called, you know, Summer Theater at Laurel. Um, But two other things I was going to say about theater, I think um, in theater, uh, my theater training has given me the ability to feel very secure about public speaking. And I think that's an asset for a head. I think it makes our jobs easier when we have to speak um, in, uh, um, extemporaneously with all sorts of groups. And I'm also really great in the fire drill because I have the loudest voice <laughs> in the school when I need to. I was going to ask if you had a theatrical outlet now. So beyond yeah, fire drills, fire is there drill. anything? Okay. I also, I'm the drama teacher for our primary school. And so I write and do a play with our little girls grades K through four. And that came about because my own daughters were in the school and they said, listen, stay out of our way. We both do theater. And I knew if I weren't doing some theater that I would expire. So I went and knocked on the door of the primary director's office and said, could we make a play with the girls? And it's become one of the highlights of my year. No kidding. See, I love stories like that. That's, that's very cool. Uh, and, and actually, um, in the same, uh, this was actually an independent school magazine article that I was reading about uh, you and uh, Laurel's summer theater program. And it said at the very end um, that uh, you write most often about being a mother, teacher, school leader. You have a, a husband, son, college-age daughters, rescue dogs, cats. You said that you teach as well. Um, so I'm wondering uh, how, how you balance it all. So I don't like the verb balance, and I never let the girls use it. Mm. I think a lot about sequence. The reason I don't like balance is that it implies that there's a perfect state where all the plates are in the air. And in fact, for most of us, um, when we are combining careers and families, uh, the plates, you know, you're lucky if they're not crashing to the floor one after the next. So for me, I I do have a yoga practice, and I do have a meditation practice, and I am a writer. And the writing is often the chance for me to process and be able to figure out what I'm thinking or feeling about a given uh, happening at school or in my life as a mom or a wife or a sister. Um, But I say to the girls, you know, it's not about balance. It's about sequence. 
It's about figuring out in a given moment what your priorities are and what needs your attention and where you can choose to focus or not. Because sometimes we don't get a choice. Sometimes something's on fire. You just got to deal with it right then. And I want us to talk with girls, even not tiny, tiny girls, but pretty small, about you always get to choose. You always get to decide, how am I going to spend my time? Uh, is this situation going to get better if I worry about it? Or is my worrying actually not going to affect it? So I should put my energy somewhere else. I'm a big believer in mindfulness. I'm a big believer in teaching kids that they have um, more dominion over their feelings than they realize. I want our kids to be emotionally literate as well as all those other fabulous literacies that we promote in our superb independent schools. Um, but so I don't really talk about balance. I talk about you do the best you can to get through your days and every day you press the reset button and say, here I am back again with a new day. And how can I move through it with as much grace and respect and empathy as I can muster? And that includes for myself. <laughs> I like it. And I'm going to try to uh, shift uh, my vocabulary a little bit to use. Was it sequence you said instead of balance? Yeah, that like for me, that's, that's the only way to fly. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, changing topics a bit, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how uh, your role specifically at Laurel um, has changed uh, since you started 13 years ago compared to today. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question, um, Scott. And I probably, uh, I, this is where I would go with that. I think um, when I began teaching in 1982, it was more of the model that I had grown up in. Parents dropped their children at the door of the school and picked them up 13 years later. And all was well. And the school was always right. I think now in a greater age of transparency, and perhaps a greater, uh, and I guess I, I despair a little bit on this one, a, a more transactional nature of education. I would say that even in my 13 years at Laurel, families are more um, willing to say out loud their um, thoughts about return on investment. And the very expensive nature of independent schools has had to... Uh, make us more conscious of um, words I never even knew um, when I was a young teacher. I didn't know the word value proposition. I certainly never thought about it. I didn't really know much. I lived in New York City for 20 years where there are so many applicants for every slot that that's never a concern. In the Midwest, in a Rust Belt city, uh, we are always looking at the demographics and we have an incredible tradition of amazing independent schools here in Ohio. Um, but the economy is not yet as robust as we hope it will soon be. And so those are questions that we, you know, that I think about that hadn't um, been part of my sort of constellation of concerns before I came to headship. And even in my most, in my earliest years at Laurel, you know, schools are slow to reveal their secrets and you don't learn everything at once until you're in a place for a while. Um, so we work on the piece about value proposition and return on investment by talking with parents about why it is that their girls um, 
uh, what their girls are getting from an education beyond college placement, which I think used to be for a long time really the only sort of way to say, yes, this hugely expensive education is totally worth it because you know, your daughter has an opportunity to go to some of the finest colleges and universities in the nation. That's true at Laurel. But mm. I also think that that puts it off, you know, till the senior year. And we actually have to be telling the story about the value added in a child's life, you know, starting for us in the preschool and the pre-K. Because we have excellent public schools in our, in our um, you know, area as well. And that's part of the job of independent school to say, why would any family plunk down this kind of money if there were just as good options um, that came with the cost of being a taxpayer? Um, so I don't, I think that that gets to the question. I think I see more, um, more desire on the part of families to understand what the money's going towards uh, and for us to make the case for why independent school and why Laurel much more deliberately with many more people involved. Um, I think faculty in the good old days, whenever they were, did not have to concern themselves with um, things like uh, retention. I don't think that was ever on a faculty member's mind. And I think at least at, in this part of the country, and I know it's different all over the country, but we think about that question. You know, what is it that helps keep the families that we want at our school? Hmm. And, and actually, that leads into my next question, and you may have already um, touched on it, but I, I was wondering if you had to name uh, the biggest challenge right now, um, either um, for you particularly uh, at your school or, or even for Laurel, um, what would you identify as that, as that biggest current obstacle? Well, I'm sure there are lots and lots of them, but one of the things I think a lot about is how we convey to families that the value of a Laurel education goes way beyond a transcript and beyond uh, standardized test scores and AP scores. And I'm very interested in thinking about ways we measure what really matters. Um, and I'm looping back to some of that conversation I had with you about things like empathy and emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. I think these are skills that are not soft and therefore to be dismissed. I think they're actually as important as much of the content that has for such a long time been king in schools like this one. And so that tension of how do you do everything that you're trying to do in a school and how time becomes the currency is a really interesting challenge and sometimes hard. Yeah. Uh, in fact, all the time hard. <laughs> and, and change is hard. You know, we ask mm -hmm. teachers to do much more than we once did. We're much more aware that kids learn differently. We're much more aware of, for girls, the importance of relationship in their connection with a faculty member so that she feels she is known and seen and that that faculty member is rooting for her. Um, we're much more conscious of time. And here's something I didn't know before I came from an East Coast um, urban environment. You know, athletics in Ohio are hardcore. And the number mm -hmm. of hours girls spend in practice and in contests is greater than the life I had back in my New York City world. And I'm sure New York City schools have changed too. I don't want them to think I'm dissing athletics <laughs> on the East Coast. Um, but I think that 
that the fact is it's more and more and more for kids. And I worry about the girls having time to daydream, to do nothing, to recharge and restore. And I worry about for their parents as well. And for my faculty, that we are all so busy. Right. No, I mean, I know that that's true in in my own personal life. And uh, how do you think that you counteract that? What do you think you can do to, uh, to combat that? I think making the case for why meditation and self-care are critical, not meditation, not everybody has to meditate. I find that idea of stopping and breathing and taking a moment really invaluable for me so that I don't just spin myself into a frenzy. Um, At Laurel, we work through the Center for Research on Girls on self-care curricula. And we also have a companion piece going with our parents so that they understand how important it is actually to build in time to do nothing into the family schedule. Now, I don't think 20 years ago we needed to have that conversation. Hmm. But I think that in our multitasking, um, I'll just do one more email quick while I'm making dinner and feeding the cat and, um, you know, supervising my toddler and my fifth graders doing homework. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think about how pressured that feels and that we need the natural world to be an antidote. We need going for a walk to be an antidote. We need to teach girls to look for the things that help them feel calmer, feel more relaxed, to step away from the dining room table and take a break from uh, uh, an essay prompt that's really challenging or a math problem, to walk around the table and get a drink of water and come back at it. That's the kind of creativity I am deeply interested in teaching at Laurel, along with all the other kinds of creativity that I think matter. I want kids to be good problem solvers in in their own learning. And I think we have to be more explicit about those strategies than we maybe once were. And explicit with families who I think are hungry to know how to help a child manage all of her obligations and responsibilities, even if she's really in middle school, let alone if she's in upper school, you know, taking five or six heavy-duty courses and playing a sport or being in the play or editing the newspaper. And in many of our schools, it's not or, it's and. And mm-hmm. so I am thinking a lot about how we don't deliver college, children to colleges, young women to colleges who are already who are too tired to take advantage of it. I want them to go to college rested enough to say, wow, this is really fun. And, you know, and many of our kids say that the adjustment to college is no big deal because they've actually been working so hard in our independent schools that the adjustment to college is a breeze. Hmm. Well, I, I love that advice to just take a moment and, and take a breath and to take some time away. Uh, I can speak for myself that I found that to be important as well. So uh, I love that a lot. And that actually leads me into my next question, which I think you've already partially answered, uh, which involves where you turn to uh, for inspiration. So obviously we already, we already talked about uh, oh, meditating and I taking a, that time, but yeah, anything I else. I have a great answer for you. You're yes, going to laugh. I only read fiction on planes. <laughs> when I travel, I, I always have schoolwork, but I don't put it in my bag on the plane um, because I don't really love to fly. And so I read fiction. It's my treat. It's my retreat. It's, uh, I have always been a reader my whole life. I can't imagine my life without stories. So for me, if the going really gets tough, I pick up a novel. 
Hmm. Um, I read voraciously. I read lots of things that are about school and leadership and, you know, writing and memoir. Um, but when I really need to just um, sort of step away from whatever the crisis is, I read novels. Um, and uh, that for me has been a source of inspiration. I also, I read a lot of poetry, but I read that early in the morning. And um, when I'm up in the quiet dark of my home and no one needs me yet. Um, <laughs> and I also rely, and this is important to say out loud, I rely a lot on my good friends who are, who loved me before I was a school head. And some of the good friends I've made who are also school heads. And their wisdom and their willingness to pick up the phone and talk or list, pick up my phone call and talk through something that's frustrating me, this just cannot be underestimated. And it's, again, a message we have to send to people coming into headship, A, that it's fun and that it's a great life um, for a working mom, and B, that there are people all along the way who will be of help and who are delighted to be generous with their time and insight. And that to be connected to that web feels like a great privilege to me. And uh, I, I think that's awesome. I think that's a great answer. And uh, you also have uh, some uh, mantras and mottos that you live I by. Do. Uh, I do. I'm referencing a, a blog piece that you did with my colleague, uh, Ari Pincus, um, I believe early last year. Is that right? Yeah. I think so. I, I did it for Ari um, and uh, it came about with a parent saying, or with a colleague actually saying, wow, a colleague from another school saying, wow, you're so clear on what you believe in your school. But of course, it's the sum total of 35 years as an independent school educator. Right. So the great Joyce Evans, who was head at um, town school when my little girls were there, said to all of the parents, if you believe 50% of what they say about us, we'll believe 50% of what they say about you. <laughs> and I've always thought that was a really good thing to remember. Children, you know, parents believe their children are totally faithful reporters. And I always think about okay, what are you not saying? You know, I'm a writer. I'm a, a reader. I know there's always backstory and subtext um, of what a child brings home and reports. Um, here, our director of the middle school, Hope Murphy, taught me when I was the mother of a uh, somewhat cranky middle schooler. She said, Anne, never ask how her day was before you administer a snack. Mm. These are really great you know, concrete ways of thinking about parenting. Um, one, Millie Berenson, who is that mentor of mine who suggested that it was time for me to be ahead, she said a great thing at the Chapin School, which is when you put the child at the center, all the grown-ups do the right thing. And in my theater training, my friend uh, Paul Castle taught me, dare to fail gloriously. you got to be willing to put yourself out there. And if you're going to make a mistake, go big or go home. Don't putter around at the edges be brave. And what's the worst that can happen? You fall flat on your face, then you stand back up and you start over. And that has been a mantra here at Laurel. It cracked me up that it appeared in the yearbook a couple of years ago. And I thought, wow, it's really taken hold, that dare to feel gloriously thinking, which I think is a great gift to give my girls. I love that. That's actually the one that, uh, that jumped out to me initially. And I was going to ask you about that. So, uh, yeah, it's attributed cool. to an acting teacher, an American acting teacher named Michael Chekhov. I have found, mm -hmm. I have Google searched it. I've done a lot of searching on it. I haven't actually come up with it. I, it. It makes me laugh that the girls here attribute it to me, but I can assure you I'm not trying to steal a citation. I just <laughs> haven't been able to find 
to whom it should really be attributed. I need to stick some of our great librarians on it. I love it. And it could be a t-shirt and maybe it is already. I don't know, but. Oh, uh, I have it on a t-shirt. Of course oh, do I you? do, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's great. In green um, and white, laurel colors. Oh, there you go. How fitting. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, um, uh, since we're continuing the positive trait. Actually, this whole conversation has been very positive. Um, do you have a proudest moment so far? Oh, gosh. I have so many. And sometimes I think a conversation like this helps us stop and reflect on the incredible joy that is this work. Um, it's a proud moment. Um, so many of them are tiny moments. You know, you see a child mm -hmm. prevail or be resilient in a set of challenging circumstances, a faculty member have a revelation. Um, I feel really lucky to work with a board that supports me and understands whose sandbox is whose. I think that's pretty important for school leadership that people sure. know sort of whose dominion. I think I think I'm pretty proud of founding the North Star Collaborative, um, which was an effort we began about 10 years ago with uh, a partner school in the Cleveland Metropolitan School District. Um, and we worked with a cohort of girls at Warner Girls Leadership Academy. And those girls are now, they were at the end of third grade, and they're now um, juniors and sophomores. Um, and the founding principal there, a, a friend of mine named Leslie Jones Sessler and I, we really wanted to braid two school communities together and to help girls understand that though one group was largely urban kids and mostly African-American, and the other group was uh, independent school kids and not as many kids who are African-American, uh, that girls have things in common. Um, despite socioeconomics or location or background or whatever. And it was a grand experiment. Um, we're really proud of our cohort of North Stars who continue. They've all finished at Warner because they Warner finishes in eighth grade. But I hope that that work, um, I know that that work has inspired some other girls' schools to take on similar kinds of projects. And I was inspired by my um, friend Jean Brune at Roland Park Country Day School or Roland Park School in Baltimore, who had done a program that I learned about as a new headmistress. And I thought, wow, what can we do um, to partner, to collaborate with an urban school? Um, so that's a pretty proud, I think I'm going to feel pretty proud, not when my North Stars finish high school, because that's just the beginning. But we know that the lever that changes poverty for an urban girl is the acquisition of a post-high school degree, of a post-secondary school degree. So I got about six more years, and then I'll call you. Right. But I'm looking forward <laughs> to their success, and I'm proud of what they've already accomplished. I love it. Yes, and I would love to hear uh, what happens down the line. That's exciting. Yep. We'll mark our calendars and talk to each other again. <laughs> That's right. Six years from now. Um, I want to end on uh, this question, uh, which is a pretty light question, and I may be able to guess at your answer, but I want to see what you say. Uh, if you had one more hour in your day, what would you do with it? Hmm. So as a school leader, I would um, read more, uh, more material that was not email. That's what I would do. So I would be grabbing a book and reading about um, something fascinating. As a mom, I would 
be trying to do less and um, find that time to be with my son who is 12. He was born the 12th day of my headship. Um, mm. I would try and just be with him without feeling like I always have to be doing something else. Um, and as a person, I would be walking on the treadmill. Um, so <laughs> what I tend to do is try to, you know, that old expression my mother used to say, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. I'm always trying to figure out if I can't do all three of those, you know, which one do I do right now? And again, not balance it, but sequence it and know that yesterday I might have sat in the family room with Atticus talking about something. And today I might walk 20 minutes on the treadmill and tomorrow I might uh, pick up some great book that's going to inspire me. But to be gentle with myself that I can't necessarily get all those done every day. I love it. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Uh, so well, thank I wanna- you, Scott. Thank you. No, this was so much fun. Really fascinating stuff. It, it's really good for me to take a breath and think about all that is so good in my world. It's fun to have the opportunity to reflect on all that is good and joyous in this work. Great. No, I love it. And I was so happy to have you. I, I just want to thank uh, everyone for listening to this episode of NEIS Member Voices and, and thank Anne again for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, we've included some great resources on some of the areas that Anne and I discussed uh, on our website at neis.org. Uh, so uh, if you're listening, be sure to visit the website for new podcast episodes and to find uh, resources for you and your school. And uh, we also always want to hear from you, uh, stories, questions, comments, successes, challenges. Uh, so please send them uh, to membership at NAIS.org. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. And thank you again. Thank you, Scott.